This is Steve Smith at the California Western School of Law, and I call the Law Review to order. Every day seems to bring new problems and issues for the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Today, the Law Review looks at the Affordable Care Act and what's going on here anyway. Our guests today on Law Review are two extraordinary health lawyers and teachers, Jody Root of the law firm of Procoprio Cori in San Diego, and Marty Knutson, an attorney from Rancho Bernardo. Welcome to both of you, and thank you for joining us uh, on the Law Review. To most people, it appears that the ACA is going off the tracks as we record this. Is that really happening? Is it coming apart? I think the current political crisis isn't really going to substantially affect the long-term outcome of the law. Um, there are obviously a lot of enrollment problems. There were a lot of enrollment problems in Massachusetts, and there's still, you know, Romney Care is still doing well there. Um, and there's a there's a political credibility problem that the president is having right now with regard to the cancellation of policies that don't meet the essential minimum benefits. Again, I think those are both sort of temporary political issues. And, there, and you're drawing a distinction between the political issues and the legal issues. Will the law work as a legal matter? Well, I don't think that the political furor is going to be enough that it's going to create a change in the legal structure. There's just got to be more over, more overwhelming consensus and the need for change. But, Mr. Yeah, yeah, I, I think the, the, the technical issues have sort of masked the success or failure of the ACA because everything's focused on this enrollment problem. And quite frankly, it's hard to tell whether or not it's going to be a success. Um, and success meaning there'll be a lot of individuals receiving coverage when they haven't before because of these technical issues. Um, my bigger concern is, you know, this is step one to a multiple step process. And the, the politics around the ACA makes it very difficult to take the further steps to change the law in those areas when they identify where the problems are. So I, to answer your question, unless there is a new cooperation on the part of both houses and the president to fix these problems, that it will be apparent when the, the technology catches up with the system, that's my biggest concern about whether it'll last enough from a legal perspective. As it st stands now, what are the legal obligations for individuals beginning in January 2014? The legal obligations. They're obligated to, they have a choice. They either enroll and get coverage or they pay a fine. And the fine being the tax. The tax. The tax, which is, Marty, you were just talking to a bunch of law students about their obligations. And you told them three things, I think. Number one, they could pay the tax, which is $95. It's $95 for the first or year. 1% of your adjusted gross income. And for that audience, for the law students, the adjusted gross income is pretty small, so it's probably going to be the $95. And um, that's not going to be due, if it, if it best way to put it, until April of 2015. If they have not purchased insurance, they would be obligated to buy insurance. But if they fail to do so or don't have insurance through some other mechanism, then they would ultimately pay that tax. Right. If they don't have insurance for a long enough period during 2014, come April 15, 2015, they will owe the tax. And it's going to be that, you know, that calculation. It's either going to be $95 or 1% of their adjusted gross income. Yeah, you know, same, same adjusted gross income you usually have in your tax return. 
The second thing you told him is if, if you don't buy the, the health insurance, you're taking a risk. You're involved in, I think he used auto accidents and cancer as two examples of very high cost uh, items. That, so if somebody doesn't buy insurance, can they then uh, buy insurance once they're diagnosed with those or they're in the accident? Uh, there are some provisions for buying insurance at different times during the year, but um, generally, what you buy tomorrow is not going to cover today's costs. It might cover some of tomorrow's costs. And that, I think, is going to be the challenge as we go on, is there's going to be that mental attitude still with some folks. Well, I'm going to wait until, I'm going because I haven't needed it in the past, and they're going to use that as a predictor of the future. We heard that today when you were talking with students who are mostly in the age group of 24 to 28, 29. Uh, of, a, of a sense of why would I spend all this money for something and then still have to pay all the deductibles and so forth, sort of ignoring the, um, the catastrophic possibility that you mentioned. But then a student asked you, and this was the third thing you were talking to him about, the student asked you, well, could I go on Medicaid, essentially, if I get one of these high cost things? And, and law students, like most students, don't make much money, often very little money. So. So could they, if in the event of the catastrophic event, go on Medicaid immediately? I, I don't know the answer to that. I, if they make the income, uh, Medicaid is, is a uh, income-based and asset-based eligibility. So, and it's also specific to you know, a certain group of individuals. If they meet the requirements of Medicaid, they can participate in the program. Is that a fallback? I was wondering because the students were asking increasing individual well, questions whether it's, that's a... It's, it's always been a fallback yeah. to, to a certain extent. Well, so, that's true. Yeah. Um, patients who come into a hospital and uh, it looks like they're going to have a substantial amount of care, hospitals have always been trying to sign them up and get them qualified for whatever program was out there. And frequently Medicaid is the only one that's out there and so the hospitals will try to recover some portion of their cost. The problem with Medicaid for, well, there's several problems. One is that the reimbursement is, in most cases, not sufficient to cover the cost of actually providing the care. And the second thing is that the person who is on Medicaid has a really extremely limited choice of providers. So many hospitals won't take Medicaid um, for certain types of services. And certainly individual providers are completely free not to sign up for the Medicaid program at all. And so you, you end up having very, uh, a much more difficult time trying to get the care that you need, particularly if it is not emergent. Also, under the existing um, Medi-Cal program, there was categories that you had to qualify for, and a lot of the students would be in the adult group that's not qualified for Medi-Cal. But, that, but under the that new... Goes the, away, that goes away after January. Yeah, so here in California, so where we're recording this, is California has accepted the that's substantial right. expansion of that's Medicaid, right. so they would. Uh, well, let's turn from. Let me, can yeah, I just, go ahead. I, mean, I didn't hear the, the speech, but one of the other issues that, that may have come up in the discussion was that there are other avenues to receive care besides insurance. So we have community clinic system in San Diego that is obligated by law to take patients regardless of their ability to pay. So if there is an illness that comes up, there's an avenue of care. Would you expect that to continue? Absolutely, there's no yeah. question about it. Um, and, and you also have emergency rooms, which are required by a lot to treat patients. So you have avenues of care without insurance that a number of individuals now 
get their cover or get their healthcare services that way. And I think it, it, with no pre-existing conditions as a part of the insurance products going forward after January, then this adverse selection process that you describe where someone without insurance then enrolls in insurance probably will occur, which is problematic then for the pricing of health plans. Um, if everyone signs up for health plans who have an, a, a uh, already existing condition, then at some point the premiums will have to go up to and that's one of the, the problems with with health insurance is it's not entirely a fair bet because you know what some of your medical conditions are and, and that's why I suppose the individual mandate is pretty important if you're going to cover pre-existing conditions well what tends to happen is that the people who don't get insurance and could in other words it's not just that they don't have the income to buy it but they're they're being uh, they're being predictors of their future if you will. right Right. Those are the young, healthy folks from who could be paying into the system and not taking as many dollars out. What we've seen so far in the enrollment through healthcare.gov and also through Covered California is that predominantly the people signing up are people who are qualifying for Medi-Cal and people who have been uninsured for a substantial period of time. And they're not old enough to cover to, to be qualified for Medicare, mm -hmm. which is the, is for the coverage for the aged and the disabled. So they're falling into that later period of life where they have more medical needs. They haven't had insurance for one reason or another. And those are the folks that are currently en enrolling in large numbers. This could change towards the end of the year. And in fact, folks are predicting that it will. Um, but part of the problem is the economics of making this all work is getting those young, healthy folks, like the ones who are helping us do this podcast, <laughs> into the system and, and paying their premiums in order to pay for the care that everyone else is going to need as well. Well, let's, let's turn from the individual's obligations beginning in 2014 to employers' obligations because for those uh, folks not on Medicare, employer... Uh, health insurance is uh, a major w form of coverage and I, I remember hearing that employers were not going to be required to provide coverage until 2015. So how does that, so employers still may and if you're covered by an employer you've met your obligation to, to be covered I mean, you don't have to get individual coverage if you're but, but are employers just free to do whatever they want until for the next year essentially? Yes, essentially the, their obligation, the, the employer mandate, got punted down the road until after the midterm elections. No. <laughs> that's really what happened. And, and, and the reality is that they weren't prepared administratively to be able to manage the employer mandate. They're having enough trouble managing the, the individual mandate. Um, so for the next year, employers can model, think about what's going to happen in January of 2015. And there are a small group, so there's a pretty large percentage of employers right now who already provide group health insurance that's going to come at least close to meeting the requirements under the, the Affordable Care Act. And they're going to have little, little or no, no effect on them, even in 2015, because they're already offering a plan. And, and then it's built into their cost structure. Then there's a, a large number of employers who are not going to be required even under the employer mandate. It's not like the individual mandate. It's not everybody. It's only employers that end up essentially having 40 FTEs. 
Okay. And so those, the, they sorry, were 50, 50, 50, 50 employees. They figured as 40 hours a week. Yeah. Um, so those companies will not have to provide coverage to their employees at all. The ones who were below 50 FTEs. Yeah. So, so you take all the, all the employee hours for a year, you divide it by 52, you divide it by 40, and if it's less, you know, if you haven't come up with a, the number that's 50, then the, you as an employer don't have to worry about the Affordable Care Act. And, and, but those individuals will still have to find their own coverage at that point. Just the, the individual mandate will continue. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's not like the employers have not been uh, anticipating this. Ever since the uh, 2010, the employers have been looking at analyzing what they're gonna, their strategies of employee retention, employee health in general, to see whether or not they should offer or continue to provide insurance coverage. And I think they, for the most part, I think they were ready to make that decision. A number of them sort of restructured themselves to make sure they didn't hit the magic 15, 50 FTEs because part-time employees don't, are, are aggregated for this FTE requirement. Um, and I think a, a number of them have found that um, to be competitive with their competition, they have to provide some form of coverage. And what that's done is it's created new markets that, quite frankly, haven't existed before, which I think is pretty exciting. Um, and, and I think that extra year is going to give employers a lot more options to provide coverage than they ever had before. The, the, are we going to have another round that we're facing now with individuals? The plans don't match uh, the requirements, the minimum requirements of the ACA. Is the same thing going to happen with em employer plans uh, a year from now? Is that the implication of what you were saying a minute ago, Marty? Well, um, there certainly will be some employers who, who won't, do, won't do their homework and at the end of the day are, are, are going to get penalized because their plans are not rich enough. Um, but this is, there's a sort of a whole patchwork out there of exceptions that apply. And so there, this isn't all going to happen at one time. The way, part of the political significance, I think, was that wave of letters in the last, you know, couple mm -hmm. of weeks that had sort of hit the, net, the, the news right after the, the government got back up and running. That's not going to happen with the employers because it's going to be an individualized basis. You're going to have grandfathered plans. You're going to have, all of this is going to phase in over time. And really, it's going to be individual employers at the end of the day are going to have a, they're going to be paying a penalty for having a plan that isn't structured correctly, and they may well then turn to their employee benefits people and say, "How come it's not structured correctly?" or something like that. So Hence the homework line. It, there's, yeah, yeah there, there, there's a lot of homework, and they they've gotten an addition, whole additional year to do their homework, which is great for them. If they receive mail, they've received a lot of suggestions <laughs> on how to provide coverage because, from the government. Um, some from the government, mostly from private industry, oh, I see. Uh -huh. um, with computer programs that now uh, tell them, you know, whatever selection they make, whether it's com compatible with the HCA, there's a whole new wave now of self-insurance plans that historically have been used by larger employers and now by, being used by smaller employers where the benefits are set up to be consistent with the HCA. There's these defined contribution plans that have been used historically for retirement programs mm -hmm. and now being used for health care. So there's a lot, a lot of sales going it, on. It, you would expect a relatively, a comparatively sophisticated group with an extra year, and you're just saying that those two things combined should not create another round of what we've just been One would hope. And they're also focused on this in small, smaller group. Um, and, and quite frankly, in today's market, that's not 
the preferred group. Small plans aren't a preferred uh, type of program for most payers. Now this, these defined benefit plans and self-insured plans are looking at the 50 below employers as you know, potential oh, right. growth. Today on Law Review, we were talking about health law with two health law experts, Jody Root and Marty Knudsen. You both represent health care entities, health care providers, uh, and talk with them a lot. What, how, do, how do most providers see the, the, the new law? If something they don't know what they're doing is a great opportunity or is a threat? I, I think they, they don't know. Um, they see the benefit of, but first of all, they analyze the existing payment structure. Regardless of whether you're a physician or a hospital, you have really only one source of payment that covers your cost. Your Medi-Cal, your Medicare, your county programs all pay less than your, oftentimes your costs, let alone your charges. So historically they had looked at this insurance industry as the entity that pays for the remainder of their patients. With an exchange, the whole idea is to provide quality care at less cost. As the premiums go down for the payer, the, the payments to the, uh, the providers will also decrease. And so that, that margin that used to be in the, in, in the commercial market won't be there to cover the cost. So that's the concern. Until they see how well the enrollment goes, then they won't know how much of a decrease they're going to have in that delta between those two figures. And at some point, probably around 2017, if everything sort of stays the same, that risk increases because large employers then can buy from the exchanges. So if they do well, then a much greater portion of their clientele will be getting their products through an entity whose sole job is to ratchet down costs by keeping the same kind of quality. And ultimately that comes off of the shoulders of the providers. Well, I think there's also a short-term um, view of people who are enrolling through the exchanges that is not very favorable from the healthcare provider community. And the impact of that is whether or not the healthcare providers decide that they're going to contract with the plans that are in the health, in the health exchange. So there's an individual market out there, there's a group market out there, and then there's the, sort of the exchange market, mm -hmm. which is a limited number of insurers and a limited plans. So for example, the University of California hospitals negotiate as a group with health plans. They're allowed to do that. It's legal. And, um, and they have made the decision that they're only going to um, be a, pro a provider with two of the health plans out of the 13 in the exchange for California. So 11, people in 11 of those plans are not going to be going to any of the UC um, facilities at least not for regular regular care, because they're not going to be contracted with the plans. And the reason, quite candidly, and then this isn't really a secret, is, is that the, the California, um, the UC entities decided that the likely group of people who would be signing up through the exchanges would be people with a lot of unmet medical needs, mm -hmm. and they felt that the what they were being offered by the health plans is, is, is contracted rates we're not going to cover the risk that the, the UC entities are going to have to take with that patient population. In, in a simple way, if they, were, if they were going to be provided reimbursement for an average group, and in fact they're going to get a sicker group, mm -hmm. that would be a way of, of that, taking some pretty substantial risk. It looks like a bad risk. bargain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
It looked like a bad bargain. So, so that's that that whole narrow network thing. Yeah. Is something that's out there. It's not being covered very much in the, in the, in the media. And the whole idea of the narrow network is, okay, maybe you need to go see a dermatologist, and there's one dermatologist on your plan, and he's you know 25 miles away. Well, he's the one you're going to because he's the only one on your plan. So, so I, you, you know, I agree with Marty, and it's even worse because you don't know what these narrow networks are when you sign up for the health plans. So ordinarily, when you sign up for a commercial product, most employees will grab the provider directory and look to see what doctors right. and hospitals they want. Well, you don't have access to that right now on uh, covered uh, California. So you're, so you're you kind of choosing. you don't know whether you're in or out or whether and for a lot of people, doc, you can see or you can't see. So. For a lot of people, the specific provider is more important than the the, the company providing insurance coverage. Uh, a lot more important. I mean, the, the providers are the ones who actually treat them. From so. what I, from I'm, when I'm told, the priorities for individuals are cost of premium, cost out of pocket, and the provider. So those are the three Not things that, in, that affect, in that order. Or? In that order, doesn't affect what insurance company. Um, you know, quality scores, any of that. It's premium cost, out-of-pocket cost, and whether your provider's in the plan or not. And right now, you can you can get a little bit of the economics from the website. You can't get the provider. Okay. Marty, you suggested that students might want to call their provider and say, which plan are you in? Can this, this, is, this is the Knudsen strategy. <laughs> you call your doctor and you say, doctor, what are you signed up for on the health exchange? And that becomes your, your the list that you want to look at. And you know, if you're if you're lucky, your health your your providers you know got five or six different plans that they're signed up with. I'd make you a bet if you called ten providers and asked them which plans they think they're participating in, at least fifty percent of them would have no idea. Really? Because they don't get direct access to the plans. They get access oh, through other through vehicles their, yeah, like an independent right. practice association. And quite frankly, some of the contracts with the payers, it isn't all that clear whether they cover all the products of that payer or just the commercial products. And so there's a number of providers out there that are unsure whether or not they're in the covered California plans. So I, I agree with that. It's a great way to do it because that's the most important contact to have. But I'm not sure right now you could get a answer that you could rely on. Well, let's uh, let's a uh, quick shift because I I might want to run for for office. So here's the Smith plan uh, for dealing with the all the hubbub of the last few weeks, uh, to, and that would uh, young people already can stand their parents' policies until they're 26. Um, so we keep that. We keep uh, the no pre-existing limitation. Uh, provision in all insurance companies and drop the unpopular provisions like the individual mandate uh, and canceling current policies. How about my uh, my platform for office? Will that work? I'd stay on sabbatical. If I, were <laughs> um, I mean, there are, it's just like any other business. There's trade-offs that go on, and so to get those, what you describe as beneficial elements to the plan, there were offsetting requirements, like the nasty things that you don't like, the mandates, and so on and so forth. So if you do what you want to do, and you don't have rate regulation on insurance premiums, insurance companies will have to increase rates to cover this liability. All sorts of adverse selection goes into what you're just describing. So you, yeah, you could do that, but you'll have very high insurance premiums going forward. 
I think it's a great plan for getting elected. I just have really uh, serious doubts about whether or not you can implement that platform. Well, I could always ex explain that I was just misunderstood. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, one one last item, uh, also different than we've discussed. There's been a lot of discussion of the contraception mandate and the constitutionality of it, and I know you were predicting that the Supreme Court sooner or later is going to decide that question. What is the legal? What is that legal issue all about? Well, the the short answer is is. In all of this, there is this concept of the minimum essential benefits that need to be in a plan. And one of them is a basket of women's preventative services, and in that is contraception. And there have been many health plans in the past, particularly smaller employers, who have specifically designed their plans to leave out contraception coverage. It's not a question of them telling their employees they can't have it, they just won't provide insurance for it. And that's clearly required under the Affordable Care Act. There have been 40 different cases that have gone to decision most recently with the D.C. Circuit. And two weeks ago, uh, two senior judges of the D.C. Circuit said that requiring these two individuals who were, were, have about 400 employees um, to make a choice between their religious beliefs or paying $14 million to the federal government was an infringement on their exercise of their religious beliefs. And so that's just the latest of the decisions. But it creates a difference or a split among different parts of the federal courts in different parts of the country. Yes. And I that's mean, when the Supreme Court normally says, well, we got to settle this one. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, a, it's a when, not an if. Sooner or later, they're going to yeah. have to settle it. Well, that gives us something to look forward to. Mm -hmm. uh, our guests on the Law Review today have been Jody Root from the law firm of Procoprio Cori in San Diego and Martha Ann Marty Knudsen, an attorney in Rancho Bernardo. Thank you both very much. This is a fascinating topic. We ought to get together um, again to find out how some of these issues come out and what the new legal issues will be because the one thing you've convinced me of is that there, there's going to be plenty of work for attorneys and people who follow attorneys as a result of this. So thank you very much for being uh, on, on Law Review today. Thanks also to our producers, Megan Wright and Jinhee Park, along with Katrina Julian and Sarah Keiki. Thank you. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or by visiting lawreview.podbean.com. We enjoy hearing from you, and to send a message, you can also go on lawreview.podbean.com. Until next time, this is Steve Smith, and the Law Review stands adjourned.